Hello, welcome to the Arc Rhyme Podcast. Uh, <laughs> uh, as a matter of fact, Mr. Jones, uh, <laughs> this is Welcome to Creative Survival Podcast, and I feel... Wait, Dina, what is Creative Survival Podcast? Wait, am I on Art Grind? <laughs> what, what, what just happened? Uh, oh, totally God. Confused. All right, all right. Um, we got the wrong door. Before... Is it Freaky Friday? <laughs> <laughs> Art Grind is next door. Uh, all right, Mr. Mr. What Miang. What did you uh, walk in? What is, uh, uh, So... What is creative survival? Yeah, so creative survival happened because of, well... <laughs> uh, basically because Tun thought that having one podcast wouldn't be enough, and he decided to do a second one with me. and uh, With video. I wanted to do video. So uh, b- Basically t- because Tun wanted to do video. So yep. um, our it, guest- It's another thing that I was not invited to. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so me and Tun had our movie date, and we were like, let's have a separate podcast and exclude Marshall, but- <laughs> yeah, it was it was kind of really all my fault. There was a lot of miscommunication, and I wanted to try uh, this other thing out. So, b- because there's a lot of video, we mostly interviewed pretty girls. So, in, in, in any case, um, so creative survival was something me and Tun worked on for probably about two months before realizing that it would be really, really silly to have two podcasts with some of the same people. And um, so, we're trying to merge them. There's no way that we can do this gracefully. So, um, I'm still pretty convinced that creative survival is a better name. Uh, but <laughs> well, I like uh, the fifth window. So. Yeah, Marshall, Marshall is still committed to, uh, you know, and, and names that no one supports him on. <laughs> actually, oh, oh, my and, one supporter did disappear in the audio is gone somehow, too. So. I, I'm um, going to try to re- revive that audio. Um, all right. So um, obviously all of us are competent people, competent interviewers, um, you know, make really, really good plans for life and then follow through. So yeah. because we decided to merge them, uh, <laughs> this is kind of creative survival under the art grind umbrella. Our first guest is, is a totally fantastic Lauren Redding. Um, oh. Writer. Um, writer, Silver writer, Point artist. Silver Point. Um, yep. is it, what, what else? I know curator. About curator. Point. Yeah, I actually did a bunch of videos with her too, separately. Actually, she, when Vincent really good said talker. there was one good interview recently, a good review of his. Didn't Lauren that, write that it? That was that was Lauren's. That's right. Really good Boom. review. Uh, um, also, she is... Would have been great. nice to be there, guys. Would have been nice <laughs> to be in the room. Yeah, you, you probably would have loved that movie. We didn't invite you to as yeah, well. Exactly. So mind you, when I was doing this, um, it was done differently where people had left mics on, so the audio quality is not the best. So, um, but you yeah. know, but considering how confusing we've just made it for everyone, they're probably you, you, you know they they anyone care. who's still with us is not going to care. <laughs> yeah, good point. Um, and they're just going to pop up in the art grind feed, correct? Like you'll just um, it, a week the, here or there, you'll have a we, creative So survival. every once in a while, you guys will hear me or Tan say, this is creative survival, just to ignore that. Uh, we're not going to edit it out because that would make things sound a little bit fake and forced. <laughs> so Lauren and her husband, who is a really, really great sculptor, are actually 
just about to move to Florida. That's um, right. Leave New York City after about 10 Shout years Shout out to H&R Studios. Yes, to form their own school slash atelier slash maybe gallery, H&R Studios. So um, make sure to check that out. I, I actually met her um, for the first time properly while doing this podcast. And we kind of, we became friends. Like all of you guys would also want to be her friend if she, if you were in a room with her for two hours. So uh, without, She's amazing. So is without, Brett, yeah. she makes amazing uh, margaritas and cocktails silver and silver point drawings remember so without further ado lauren redding here goes um, this is lauren redding uh, she is a phenomenal silver point artist just in case anyone doesn't know what silver point is it is a really really complicated obscure beautiful medium that very few people in the world actually do but lauren does it and she she, um so uh lauren uh can you talk a little bit about um how how you you know what what brought you to art (laughs) oh okay that actually is really it's interesting because um, my mom is an immigrant, and I think I was always a very good student. And so there was this expectation, like, medica, banquera, abogada, like, doctor, banker, lawyer. And so I got accepted into a very, very um, competitive undergraduate program, even though I was always the token kid drawing. And I went in actually studying history and political theory in conjunction with each other. And even as a freshman, I was being trotted off to like Fulbright scholarship meetings to prep me maybe for a far more traditionally academic career, which I think made my mom's family very happy. Like she's not going to be like a lawyer, but she's going to be an academic. This is good. And um, (laughs) I remember that I was always the token kid who drew. So when I felt rather overwhelmed by that course load, I enrolled in a painting class as an elective. And I thought, well, this will give me a lot of free time this quarter, which is what I need. And it was, oh, God, it was like all at once the most challenging and organic thing I'd ever done. And And did you find yourself doing it 18 hours a day and and neglecting your academic course course load? uh, Yeah, yeah. (laughs) I just ended up in the art department all the time. And so I matriculated the next quarter as an art major. And I think everybody was kind of puzzled, but also they weren't as shell-shocked as you might expect. And um, that, that was kind of, yeah, it, it just it happened very suddenly and very blissfully, and I just knew instantaneously that that was what I should be doing. And it was interesting because during that time, uh, my undergraduate program shifted from a highly representational, highly skill-based curriculum to one that was very, very conceptual. And while I think it's very, very good to be able to converse and maintain a dialogue in both, it was a rather totalitarian shift in which I was not welcome by the end of it. And, and which which undergrad was that? I went you're... to Northwestern, uh, just north of Chicago. Uh, yeah, no, 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 that that makes sense. And, yeah. Um, so I I became familiar with Lauren's work when she was at the New York Academy of Arts. So um, I'm assuming what brought you there was um, the fact that um, there was a very skill oriented at that point. <laughs> <You're> so <laughs> it, welcome. It, you were so you must have been so welcome. I, I was so welcome. <laughs> yeah. I, I remember like the first time over lunch, and I'm I'm half Cuban. My mom's from Cuba, so I talk with my hands. So I should I should do this. But uh, I remember the first time during lunch when I heard other students speaking very ardently about Caravaggio, not ironically, not 
blasting him as a perpetuator of some sort of patriarchal something something but just with with complete and total reverence and I thought oh my god this is this is what I've been waiting for for a while now um, so me and my sister when I just graduated from the academy and she just started at mm-hmm. some point um, had a very public debate in front of our friends from home about the virtue of lead white versus titanium <laughs> white and this went on for hours until everyone around us was actually asleep <laughs> uh, but we were so into it and the New York yeah. Academy of Art, at least at the time we were there, was the one place where yeah. you could do that. Yeah, yeah. And, and and just now, like, I'm a total... Being a Silver Point artist means you, you can't help but be, like, a materials junkie. So now I'm just, like, running through all the uses for lead white and titanium yeah, white in my head because I buy those pigments a lot for... Well, not yeah. lead white, but titanium, um, certainly. So let's go on with your... You know, that was your story. Um, so yeah. you end up at the New York Academy of Art. And, yeah. uh, then, and, and you are so welcome there. Uh, yeah. Then what happens to you? Well, you know, um, I, part of the reason... I went straight from undergrad to grad school because I graduated in the middle of a terrible recession and I had the rather ass-backwards idea of thinking, <laughs> what's a great way to procrastinate? Take out a bunch of loans, you know? Um, and it just... I ended up setting up next to this sculptor in an anatomy class whom I ended up marrying a few years <laughs> later. And, and I felt also very lucky because when we were there, obviously the, the instinct is, oh, everybody is great we're part of this wonderful community and the very serendipitous thing is that that feeling has maintained itself and even gotten stronger as time has gone on and we've gotten out of the academy our year um just gelled really well they formed a very tight-knit community especially a lot of the women in our year um very proactive spearhead a lot of things and so I think I'm just grateful that I was part of a group of people that very naturally got along and worked well together. Uh, um, okay so then um, so you have this what seems like a really positive experience in grad mm-hmm. school where you're getting what you want out of your education yeah. and you, you're kind of you know you've met your husband presumably the love of your life and someone who's you know <laughs> they killed each other yeah that, that, um, that um you 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 form a tight-knit group of group of mm-hmm. art friends which, yeah. which is a huge deal yeah. yeah um so what did you think would happen when you graduated Oh, God, I think I thought some magic fairy would, like, sprinkle some dust on me and be like, here's a full-time job making a nice salary, and you'll magically have all this time to do your own work, and you'll be able to pay your rent easily. So and this, um, which, which kind of fairy was it? Was it the gallery fairy? The, the um, you're, go, you're going to get a really fancy gallery right out of graduating, or was it the academia fairy? It was the academia fairy. Yeah. Um, I think I had had the intention of teaching after school, and I taught even a little bit in undergrad. And I mean, the economy was still fairly ravaged by that time. Schools had implemented tons of budget cuts. And of course, the first departments that were hit were the fine arts departments. So there really weren't teaching positions and the ones that were available required tons of experience I didn't have. And then to my surprise, didn't even, um, you know, would either require horrific commutes or didn't pay much. You know, and again, I was panicking. You know, I had to stay in New York somehow. So I actually, uh, it was kind of funny. My my grandmother, when my family moved to the United States, ended up cleaning houses for 40 years. And as little kids, my mom would bring my brother and I to these houses. She'd clean, like, oh, let's see how 
how clean you can get this toilet. And I ended up using like these very OCD neurotic <laughs> cleaning skills, which now just drive my husband nuts to, I, I cleaned apartments for about nine months after school. And I didn't realize it at the time, but that job allowed me to have a schedule in which I could keep working. And the thing I didn't realize once I got out of school is going from that job then to a part-time job um, working in visitor services at the Met um, just allowed me to kind of maintain the momentum I'd acquired in graduate school because I was actually a painting major and I started working in Silver Point only a couple months before graduation. I'm always a bit late to the party when it comes to realizing things about myself. And so... I was really excited about this new medium and exploring it and getting into making traditional gessos and preparing panels and the whole nine yards. And to have had the time to do that was a luxury that I certainly didn't acknowledge while I, again, as an adult, was scrubbing toilets to pay my rent. It was actually it worked out pretty well. I, I never really had a break in terms of, I, I never had to stop making work after school and and that's amazing because it's actually so easy to like for that break to turn into a permanent thing i know um, i know and that's that's one of my biggest fears you know just kind of that that speed will dissipate or die down or be impeded and you know at the time i was really you know getting out of school and not being able to find stable work it was very frustrating i was very angry i was in the best shape of my life because i was riding a bike everywhere and i just go to central park and i just do lap after lap after lap and i just pedal furiously um but it actually it was there you know hindsight's 2020 there was no way i realized at the time that it was actually a very uh, very fortuitous thing to happen so you know i was piss poor but i i could just barely make enough money to pay my rent and then I could like buy bags of titanium white you know and and play with the grounds make and make perfect ground yeah yeah, yeah 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 which is not you know it takes a little effort I so. bet a lead ground would be amazing for silver point actually I, I bet but I can only find it like flake white tubes of paint I, I don't know if there's any place that I should research this um there isn't anymore there used to be a place called David Davis uh which sold the most beautiful lead white that I will not even tell you about right now oh, so it's okay. not you know the, not to give you the <laughs> to make me wistful Uh, yes yes um so um so you're cleaning apartments and Mm -hmm. you're you know presumably that gives you a reasonably kind of you know it's it's a freelance job um um, you're figuring out silver point um Mm -hmm. and how long does that go on for well um one of the people for whom i was cleaning ended up being probably one of the most generous sincerely good human beings i've ever met in my life and she said, I have a friend who volunteers at the Met Museum, and obviously your skills would translate well to, to something there. And through her, you know, I, I, she kind of, you know, encouraged me to pursue something there. And, um, and she would even do, like, little mock interviews with me and things. The fact that this, this woman let me literally come into her home, not just to clean, but to, she kind of ended up coaching me about a lot of things and kind of gave me a lot of the confidence that I was definitely lacking at the time. So that was another very serendipitous aspect to that is I met this incredible human being who was one of the few things kind of keeping me emotionally afloat 
at the time. Um, so you end up working at the Met? Um, yeah, in visitor services, selling admissions tickets and answering questions at the information desk. And I did that for about a year and a half. Um, and then the sculptor from my anatomy class and I were like, okay, we're going to get hitched. We need health insurance for the both of us. So I needed something full-time pretty quickly. And so, um, you know, I, I knew some of the people in the security department. So I became the least terrifying security guard at the Met Museum. You know, as, as someone who has worked at the Met, um, I, I, I can tell you that <laughs> you, you were not actually the um, the least terrifying. There were people there who were even less terrifying I than you. I was awake. That was good. In, so. um, including that guy that got fired for riding a skateboard all through the storage unit and crashing into a column somewhere. Oh, that was before I got there. Yeah, that um, was... He, was... he was a friend, actually, then. Okay, so um, so at this point you're married. You mm-hmm. are working on Silver Point drawings. Mm-hmm. Um, the whole time. So being a security guard, I mean, that's a full time job. Yes. Right? Yes. Um, so when are you making your art? So I was able to do forty hours in four days, and so I had Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday off, which was lovely because the rest of the world goes off to work, as do I, just in the corner of my living room that is my studio. And um, so having that flexibility for time, also like if you have to mail a package on a Tuesday morning, there's not going to be anybody else at FedEx or UPS. So just just the kind of banal logistics of trying to get your art up and going are a lot more simplified. Um, But I think, honestly, the other thing I do miss about that job was that I had access to the galleries when they were closed to the public. So, you know, as guards, you know, we would have to go in and be in place before the museum opened up. And at the Met Museum, um, in the rooms where the Rembrandts are currently, there's natural light. You know, there's a big, huge skylight above the galleries. And in the morning, obviously, the, the incandescent lights are off. And if you go in kind of during that time leading up to the museum opening to the public, these Rembrandts are, are flooded with natural light. And if I saw people do what I did as a guard, I would have... I would have, I would have, I don't, I don't even know what I would have done in the galleries, but I would like move the stanchions and I would get really, really close and I would really peer at everything and you would be able to see that natural light shooting through like all the varnishes and layers of a Rembrandt to see like actually fairly articulated, descriptive backgrounds and paintings that when the lights are on and the sun is positioned differently just kind of look like a solid mass without anything really drawn into them and um, just being able to go through in the quiet like that and have that kind of artwork utterly to yourself and be able to study it really really study it um, was and and now I'm obnoxious to go to museums because I'm just like okay if I can't have 20 minutes with every individual thing I consider myself you know kind of screwed but, um, oh my God, just to be able to go through, you know, the Greek and Roman galleries in the morning also in natural light and see all of those white marble sculptures just glowing with sun. It, it was just, part of it was almost, it almost, it really was otherworldly, you know, and, um, and I, I'm, I'm spoiled now because I, if I go back to the museum to see my old coworkers, I'm like, oh, really? Like, I can't. 
I just kind of do what I want. There is something about having it all. To, I, I mean, my job at the Met was very marginal, but I mm-hmm. could go in on Mondays and go in yeah. very early yeah. and basically have the place to myself. Yeah. Um, uh, yes, I mostly use that to take advantage of no one being around and being able to stare really, really yeah. close, like, like, yeah. way closer than you really should. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. The, um, Okay, and um, so, um, so you um, so you basically you have a job, you have mm-hmm. you have health insurance. This is all important. Very important. Um, and you have time to make your own art. Mm-hmm. And are you exhibiting anywhere at this time? No. Um, I during that time I was kind of getting yeah, kind of getting up and running. And again, it kind of refers back to the community we had within our year. You know, I think um, a lot of people were very proactive about making opportunities for ourselves, you know, as we were all kind of in these burgeoning stages of, of getting our own art out. Um, so I think probably a really big exhibition for me at that time was one at the National Arts Club curated by Sherry Cammy. Um, who's an instructor at the Art Students League and, um, you know, a pretty well-known artist within the Silver Point community also. I think that was in 2012 or 2013. But that show received some attention, and my work received a bit of attention. And obviously the venue is, you know, gorgeous. But, um, and I think also Diana Corvell's Love It, Lock It, Leave It at Island Weiss, that was... That was really exciting. That was a great show. That was a great show. The concept, everything. Um, so those were two big highlights. But uh, so in October of 2017, I'm having a solo show in Los Angeles, Greater Los Angeles. It's in the neighborhood of San Pedro at Menduina Schneider Gallery, which specializes in Latin American art. And it's very exciting for me because, you know, it's, it's going to be a show comprised entirely of silver point drawings, which doesn't happen often. And um, I've never been to L.A., so I'm excited to get out there. And I also started curating a little bit in 2017. So in the spring, I curated a show called Argentum Contemporary Silver Point, which was a national group exhibition in Manhattan. And that also wonderfully received, um, especially a very nice write-up, an American art collector. So, you know, over the last... You know, a few years, things have started coagulating a little bit, and it really does go back to, you know, like I, the, you know, with the people I know are are very generous. You know, nobody has this attitude of like, well, I'm going to just, you know, run on ahead of everyone else and kind of disregard them and leave them in the dust. Everybody very much has this this mentality of, you know, like as one of us rises up, we take the others if possible, and so. This happens just because other people suggest it or other people um, encourage me to do it. You know, it's very much a group effort at every level. And so I just, uh, you know, the more I get to do, the more I have to remind myself how lucky I am, again, that I was in that particular year at the academy surrounded by those particular people. Because it really kind of, you know, kind of takes a village for that to happen. It does. And I actually... 
so I wasn't very close to my year at the mm -hmm. academy, except for tons of <laughs> here. Um, and it took me years to realize how cool the people in my class actually were. Yeah. And right now, when I think of the people whose opinion I trust, and yeah. who's, you know, um, kind of the most supportive ones, the best artists, you know, mm -hmm. they're the ones that I failed to make friends with for two years of grad school, <laughs> despite yeah. being with them every day and, um, and, and befriended later. And mm -hmm. you're right, I mean, we, we were really, really lucky to kind of have, yeah. you know, like, like have this it also took me years to realize that like you know it's no fun if you're doing it alone yeah. like, like it, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's so true like nothing is really that much fun if you're doing it alone yeah, yeah. so luckily I've never I've never had the the issue of working um, in complete solitary confinement so you know uh, obviously the sculptor husband was a, a natural roommate, you know, after we got out of school and had to save money. And then we also subletted rooms for a while in an apartment um, to current classmates at the time and then other incoming students. So we also, it was great to have, there was a certain palpable energy in conversation that was ongoing for a couple years after we got out of school. So that by the time we got our own apartment, I think we felt very comfortable in terms of our identities and philosophies and, you know, had, had established enough roots within, again, that conversation that we didn't feel quite so bad having our own little place. Yeah, um, yeah so, um, and especially in New York, which is, you know, it's a big bizarre beautiful place yeah. you know and, and kind of not the easiest place and being an artist no. in new york is not the easiest thing yeah yeah it, it might be a really exciting thing but it's it's not a straightforward path yeah so, so by the way um to get back to your days at the met um mm -hmm. it, it sounds like a reasonably good setup uh, mm -hmm. what made you stop the, or, my feet hurt <laughs> <laughs> and telling people to step away from the painting I took it all very personally because I obviously am very emotionally invested in that collection and I valued everything within the walls of that building and um, to see people come in and be rather disrespectful or just assume that it we're all fake and to kind of you know I think I think the I really enjoyed working Friday and Saturday evenings when the museum was open later because then all the locals would come in and it sounds kind of um, it sounds kind of cheesy, you know, but we had like our regulars, you know, there there were people who'd been coming in in the evenings for many many years and knew all the guards and had a rapport with them and knew where everything was in the collection and would come and see what was now hanging in which room and being able to converse with people like that and get to know them, you know, kind of reaffirmed to me, you know, one of the, the I guess, the better purposes of, of the museum. But, yeah, especially during the holidays, just seeing, like, the, the hordes of tourists come in, like, swinging their backpacks into things and just being totally disrespectful and not, you know, treating it like an amusement park, that wore on me. That wore on me as much as, you know, my, my ankles and lower back felt worn. Um, so. so what did you do then? No. Oh, um, I started working for, uh, as a studio assistant for a major contemporary artist in Manhattan. So it's, it's a nine to five Monday through Friday job, which does cut back a bit on the studio time, but I think physically it's a lot healthier and not having to deal with the public so that's uh that's fine for me 
So what do you, is there anything that you wish someone had told you when you were, let's say, in grad school or just graduating from art, for, you know, from, from art school and kind of learning to find your way in the art world? Oh, uh, you should have taken off a few years, not just for the sake of gaining job experience, but maybe just for sort of, um, you know, funneling your artistic voice also. Um, I think to be more patient, to not expect things to happen right away and I think just you know I mean no one in my family is an artist no one in my family's ever gone into a field as precarious as the creative field so I think there was a bit of a general panic from myself and uh, there was really no way to know that things would work out or that yes Lauren your rent will get paid and I'm not the type of artist who can work well when I'm too too stressed you know like I do have to have things be or approach being or seem to be getting close to being relatively stable to kind of you know silver point is it requires a lot of focus you know you can't kind of be off mentally flitting around somewhere else you have to um, like worrying about paying the bills exactly. I, I actually I totally agree with you yeah. I think um I, I think this whole idea of being a starving artist if you're starving you're not thinking about art you're no not about, at all you're thinking about food and, <laughs> yeah. and honestly like food is such a boring thing to think about right <laughs> like you, you know you, you don't want to be thinking about that so or cheap. or rent or yeah. you know that, or yeah. where the next bowl of ramen is going to come yeah. from that. yeah so i think if someone would have just said look your credit card's going to be fine you're going to have a place to sleep you'll figure it out you'll cobble things together you'll prove to be much more resourceful than you realized you know that that would have been um reassuring and the thing is i realize now everybody was kind of you know warning a lot of us you know it's going to be hard the art world is difficult it's going to be challenging and and um and that's integral to know i mean obviously you have to have some idea of that but also that you know human beings can also be creative in terms of figuring out how to survive and you'll be you know just someone should have said like calm down like here's some vodka you know just relax it'll work out but uh, I, other than that, um, you know, again, like, I, I, there really wasn't anyone really close to me who could offer any pragmatic advice about this is the next step you have to take because, uh, you know, I kind of, I, 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 being an artist, I was totally different from anyone else in my family or what anyone else had pursued. So, you know, it was... Uh, and there's just, there's no real map, at least after, I think after the recession in 2008 and oh. a lot of the galleries crashed, yeah. whatever map or blueprint um, mm-hmm. artist had was kind of, it stopped working, or at least that's what I felt like. And it's really, it's and really disheartening to hear people talk about what the gallery scene resembled in the 70s and 80s, and they'll be like, oh, people your age, you know, you shouldn't complain, you have social media, you can find ways to get your work exposed to other people, and it's like, yeah, but in the 70s and 80s, it seemed like everybody was on cocaine and selling stuff like crazy and it's like the market is doesn't seem to be similar at all um, you know you know i kind of i'm, I'm a few years older than you said mm-hmm. and i feel like i caught like the tail end of actually being able to reliably sell your work through a gallery yeah and up until 2008 i really could have a show i mean i i don't think i think whatever i was baking was probably not the best work that i've ever made and i was also very young and maybe should have would have been better off having a little bit more time to kind of, you know, find my voice. But um, instead I found a gallery and the gallery sold things. And I Mm -hmm. thought that was 
how it's supposed to be. You yeah. find a gallery, they give you a show, you sign a mm -hmm. little contract, mm -hmm. and then you sell all of that work, and then you have money for a year, and mm -hmm. then you run out of that money, and you do another show. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then, I mean, just in 2008, that basically just stopped. Like, like That's crazy. Like, it could happen, like, the year before that, yeah. and the year before that, yeah. like, that was the way it was. And after that, it at least for me, um, it was never the same again. Yeah, uh, yeah. Um, but I mean, there are new, there are new ways to kind. Of, I, I mean, yeah. I th honestly, I think there's advantages to kind of having that system crash, um, mm -hmm. which is that we can be much more independent and resourceful, yeah. and we we're actually I feel like as artists, we're much more in control of our destiny. Yeah, that's which, true. That's true. Maybe maybe not having a gallery as an entity kind of hovering around, or there's certain pressures you don't have to worry about then if you. If you're going to rely on other means to, um, I mean, like, and not not having to. I mean, I feel like a gallery is almost like a marriage. <laughs> like, not, not having to commit. I feel like is nice. You can kind yeah. of date a gallery for a while, and, you know, and and then you know move on if certain things don't you know yeah. suit either party. But I feel, yeah. but I feel like no longer kind of going in, jumping into a marriage with mm -hmm. with a gallery. There's a relief in that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so how, how do you hope your future will, will kind of uh, will go from here? Well, I mean, there's always the, the spectral expectation of a winning Powerball ticket being purchased at some point. But honestly, I would love to be able to subsist just through a combination of private teaching and sales. You know, I, um, I, I also can't help, you know, obviously, you know, you have to be pragmatic and so I I think I would like the administrative challenge of maybe running some sort of small school or even just a studio out of which my husband and I could have a few students at a time almost sort of have an apprentice sort of program um, and then yeah obviously to to sell enough to have a decent amount of income coming in through that um, I'm very grateful for the day jobs I've had because they've allowed They've allowed me to stay in New York, which has proven invaluable. But I, um, you know, I, I really think it would be it would be nice to be able to work for ourselves. I think so. This is something we've been thinking about more recently. And again, you know, like uh, with social media and everything, there is a definite upside in being able to kind of. Um, I don't know how to, how to, you know, you can kind of, you can grow an audience, you can, you can, you can reach build, out. I mean, you can build your own world. Yeah. And I feel yeah. like that wasn't possible. I mean, maybe it was possible 10 years ago, mm -hmm. but I didn't know how to do it. It was too lazy, it was too, whatever, socially enough. <laughs> uh, but I feel like it became much easier to kind of build the kind of world, like, yeah. like, I feel like whatever the art world is going to be in the next however many years like it's, yeah. it's 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 a very it's going to be a very different place yeah and yeah. i feel like we're actually some of the people that can build that place too you know yeah. maybe oh, to our liking so. yeah yeah well you know i think about 10 years ago facebook was so rudimentary even then and now it's kind of imploded into this omnipotent thing and, and that's just one social but now, media now, outlet. now it's now it's the thing that people's parents do right <laughs> <laughs> yeah. but it's yeah it's it's interesting to think about how things Shift And the thing that I do do now that I never did before is I do try to pay attention to different um, technological trends and kind of keep abreast of those things. Whereas before, if I could, you know, turn on a computer, that was quite a triumph, you know. Again, you know, silver point, I revert back to this totally tactile, handmade 
way of, of, you know, almost like a micromanagerial tangibility, you know, that's what I respond to more than something on a screen. But the beauty is you can use the screen to share that anachronistic process. And you and can use the screen to actually fund that anachronistic <laughs> process yeah. and give it an audience and yeah. kind of make it possible for yourself to keep doing this. Yeah. The things that's very compulsive and very time consuming. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so one one last question: um, If you could choose um, one person to have drinks, so this person doesn't have to be alive. Mm-hmm. One person to have drinks with um, that is, you know, like 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 it like so. Um, you'd have a time machine that could move you back as far in time as as you want. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But one person for dinner and drinks. I think I would, I would love, love to have the opportunity to speak to Agnolo Bronzino, who's the Italian Mannerist painter, um, chiefly because his work melds all of the things that kind of make my heart race the most, um, exquisite drawing, indirect methods, um, and then this kind of coy double entendre within the world of poetry so the community that he was a part of also you know very very much overlapped with this tradition of humanist poetry that was prevalent in all the courts at the time and there was a really large literary kind of um, crossover slash undercurrent slash um, relationship in a lot of ways you know sexual relationships I mean like everything was really merging together within that whole sort of uh um, I don't know, bastion of culture at the time. And to pick his brain about technically just how he worked, how he built up a painting like that, what his drawing process was as a former student of Pontormo's, um, you know, how he thought of the written line as opposed to the visual line. He, he was just kind of in the middle of a lot of things that really pique my interest. And uh, I don't know, I think one of the most transformative experiences I've had in New York, which is totally unique to New York, is uh, the first time I went into the Frick Museum. I can't pronounce the last name, so I'm going to butcher it, but there's a bronzino of a young man called Ludovico Lilada. And the background is almost like a chartreuse color, and it's a young man. I, in I, I know that painting. Yeah, I, I, and, I, I know. And, and it was spent so much time with that, with that painting. Yeah, and it was uh, it was hanging in a different spot in the Frick than it has been in the last few years. And you look down one hallway at the Frick, and it's just this beautiful, beautiful, beautiful repetition of these architectural elements and shapes and, and dark, you know, moody values. And then there's this painting, just like this shot at the very end of the hall, and I was just like, oh my. F- freaking god you know i i just kind of i i died a bit and uh, again as as a guard i had a lot of time to look at the one bronzino that's in view in the paintings galleries at the met uh, when i was working there gallery 609 because i had to know where everything was located and um you know i i took time outside of work to research that painting and again it was this beautiful melding of of everything that i really I personally esteem, and so, I don't know. I mean, 16th century Florentine, I'm sure the wine would be good, you know, for some sort of dinner thing, and, um, 
yeah, um, just to... yeah, you could have wine. You know, you could you could have your wine on the steps of the you know, the Duomo, maybe. The... If we if we could drink it in the chapel for Eleonora de Toledo that he painted in Florence, <laughs> like just sit in the chapel. That's just a completely immersive experience of his work with him. I would even take a skeleton now. I'm really not picky with the wine <laughs> and be able to. Oh, that would be. Uh, that would that would be tremendous. That sounds like a dream. Yeah. A skeleton of bread. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I I I took history of painting techniques with Lisa Bartolosi, and that one semester was tremendously empowering in terms of just the knowledge we had, and it was all because of Lisa's very selfless pursuit and accumulation of this knowledge herself over her own career, and she even took art conservation classes. I mean, she's an encyclopedia and a technical virtuoso, and then just a stellar human being. And I kept thinking to myself during that class, I wish I could go back. I mean, I loved going to Northwestern. I loved being in Chicago. That was great. But I wish I could go back, and rather than either go to Northwestern or the Academy, just work in her studio for her for a set amount of time. Just kind of how they used to do it in in Europe during the Renaissance, you know, you would have these, these, you know, I mean, and that was how, how all of that information and knowledge was kind of imparted from, from, um, you know, Ghirlandaio and Verrocchio to Michelangelo and Leonardo and from Perugino to Raphael, you know, just that very hands-on means of learning processes that can be beautifully theorized and written about but aren't fully comprehended until you have um, a practical working knowledge of them. And, I mean, my God, yeah, if I could have just, I would have been content just running out and getting her coffee, you know, just to be able to kind of, you know, through osmosis soak in, you know, everything going on in her own studio. So. Yeah, no, I mean, this is, it's interesting. I haven't, like, God, I haven't even feel like my brain has been so like occupied with diaper changing that um <laughs> uh, but like you're talking about like an apprenticeship yeah um, yeah and and that sort of that sort of system i think is underappreciated across um, the board in in the labor field i mean hey Giotto would have would have never become Giotto for if if he i mean if he wasn't like mixing grounds for Chimabue. exactly exactly yeah. and uh you know and, and i'm enough of an art history and materials geek to think like mixing grounds for Chimabue is like a level of utopian heaven that i can't comprehend so <laughs> Yeah. Um, I actually don't know how to pronounce his name. So if it's Chimabue, <laughs> then you've 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 taught me something. Oh you've ta- yeah, I feel like I've learned many things for his conversation, but now now his pronunciation of his name too. Thank you for listening to the Arc Rhyme podcast. Rate and review us on Apple Podcast. Also, we're on Instagram at Arc Rhyme Podcast. You can leave comments on the thread or dm us there we usually see them also facebook we're at art grime podcast you can uh leave comments future questions for our guest and such there our website is www.artgrindpodcast.com definitely go there for the beautiful images that we post off the artist and don't be shy to donate us money so we could buy some really good booze for the guests. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye.